passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Those ministries. So let's jump into our study this morning. This morning, we're continuing in our series. The series is called, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And we're looking at how Jesus has changed the world. He's changed world history. And the way we've begun to do this is we're taking a little bit of look at some of the Christmas texts, and then we're moving from the Christmas texts to looking at history itself and seeing how the birth of Jesus has changed it. This morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. We'll look at the first seven verses, which is one of the most common Christmas texts. And as we look at it, I want you to just keep in your mind's eye the cruelty of the world into which Jesus was born into and how uncivilized it was in those times. But then we're going to jump from that text and look at 2,000 years of history. And we're going to see how the good news of Jesus has changed the world. It's civilized, barbaric societies. We're going to see how it has changed art. And lastly, we're going to see how it's even changed politics. So we have a lot of fun stuff to look at. So beginning on the top of your outline, let's start in the text. Jesus was born into a cruel world. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Joseph was engaged to Mary. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and he knew for sure that he wasn't the father, he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. But an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because that which is born with or conceived within her is from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has created this child in her womb, not another man. At this point, when this edict um, is, takes place from Caesar Augustus, and Joseph has to travel with Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem, she's almost nine months pregnant. And that's a hard time to take a little trip, isn't it? They're going from Nazareth to Bethany. Why would they even be located in Nazareth? Nazareth in the Hebrew is, means the word branch, and I like to think of it this way. Nazareth was the branch office of the Bethlehemites. It seems there were a number of Bethlehemites who had settled in Nazareth. Now, according to this edict, Joseph and Mary would have to go back to his hometown. I checked Google Maps. It's doesn't look like that bad of a trip. It's only an hour and 56 minutes today by car. It's about 100 miles. But think of that trip in that day. 100 miles, maybe 20 miles a day, uh, five-day trip. 
She's pregnant, close to nine months. The Christmas cards have her riding on an animal, but that's not the biblical text. Maybe, maybe she had to walk also, because we know that they were poor, very poor. Like I said, at this time, it was a very harsh world, a very difficult world, very uncivilized. The text continues. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. They arrived in Bethlehem from Nazareth, but there was no room for them to stay. There was no room for them in the public housing, no room for them in the inn. But remember why they were traveling to Bethlehem in the first place. That's the place of their family origin. There was nobody who was part of their family who was willing to open their home for them and take them in, even though she's pregnant and about to give birth. They end up staying where the animals stay in some kind of a stable, and that is where Mary gives birth to baby Jesus, and she lays him in a manger. I just want to focus on this idea. Think of how cruel the world was, how harsh and difficult life was at this time. You can see that in the they're traveling from, Beth, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. You can see that in the birth. But I want you to know this, that since Jesus, after the birth of Jesus, wherever the gospel of Jesus has gone, the world has become a much more civilized place, a much kinder place, a much nicer place. Let's go ahead and work our way through this. Begin with point two. The birth of Jesus civilized the world. Nothing in history compares to what Jesus' birth has done and is still doing to civilize barbaric people. And I mean nothing has compared to what Jesus has done. Most of the civilized values, most of the civilized attitudes that we have in our Western society that we consider common sense are actually things that have simply been part of our society because of the Judeo-Christian values in society. And by the way, the farther we drift away from those Judeo-Christian values, the more barbaric we will become like our ancestors were. Let's take a little bit of a historical survey. Let's begin with Jewish roots. Christian morality has its roots in Judaism, and simply let's just call it the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, when they were given, were light years ahead when it comes to morality than so many of the societies around the Jews in the ancient world. I like the way Abraham Lincoln says this. He says, the Bible is the greatest gift God gave to man. Apart from it, we would not know right from wrong. That where there is no godly influence, no biblical influence, you find a very barbaric and depraved society, as we're going to see. And Jesus comes along and he takes the Ten Commandments and he tries to say, folks, this doesn't just matter the things we actually do, but what really matters is our heart. 
from which sin and evil desires come. That's where purity starts. So he sort of even elevates the Ten Commandments. Matthew chapter 5, 27 through 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the spread of the Christian faith caused God's design for morality to spread around the world in many cultures throughout history. Some of the most barbaric cultures in history have been civilized by the good news of Jesus. And if Jesus had never been born, you and I would probably still be drinking out of human skulls like our ancestors, the Goths, the Franks, and the Saxons used to do until Jesus invaded their culture and changed their hearts and changed their lives. Let's look at this more. The, the world before Jesus. Uh, surrounding the Jews were the Canaanites. And we've heard about the Canaanites. We read about them in our Bible, but we don't often have a good sense of what their culture was like. The Canaanites worshipped other gods. They worshipped Moloch. They worshipped Baal. They worshipped Ashtaroth, who was Baal's wife, and a host of other gods. We see those names go by us as we read our Bible, but it doesn't connect with anything. Let's begin with Moloch and what worship of him was like. Worship of Moloch involved child sacrifice. That's what it was like. In fact, Leviticus 18.21 says this. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch. Let me show you what he looked something like this. We'll put that on the screen. He had a bull head. He had a bronze body. And there was a fire that was superheated under him. So as a bronze statue, he would become just blisteringly hot. And he had hands that were in front of him in sort of a cupped fashion. And the way you worshiped Moloch is you took your newborn child and you put him into his hands and your child was scalded to death. Now, the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not murder. Light years ahead of what the religions around Israel were like. Now do you see a little bit more of why the Israelites were not to mix with them? not to worship like them, and why Joshua was originally told to exterminate them. Take Baal, for instance. Baal, he was the god of sexuality, ultimately the god of fertility. Worship of Baal, Baal involved prostitution. It involved prostitution of both sexes. That was normal. That was considered regular worship in this culture. But what does the Ten Commandments say? Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's one man and one woman for life. You don't go to the temple and have a sexual relationship with somebody else as part of your worship. You see how the Ten Commandments are light years ahead, morally and ethically, compared to the very cultures that surrounded ancient Israel. Let's leave the Canaanites. Let's look at the Syrians and the Phoenicians. They, you don't really find much of a moral improvement there. 
Their worship involved, once again, prostitution of both sexes. Let's go to the Egyptians. Look at Isis. Worship, not, you know, worship of Isis involved homosexual prostitution. The male priests were to have sex with male men. That was considered normal. That was their version of church. And what does the Old Testament say? A man shall not lie with another man like a woman. Homosexuality is not wrong. My point is simply to help you understand how morally dark the world was before the coming of Jesus. Things that we would consider gross today were considered normal in that day. And the Ten Commandments and the Jews are shining like a light in the cultures around them. Let's move on to the Greeks, get to a little bit more of the New Testament area. Uh, the Greeks contributed many great things to the world, but morality, by the way, was not one of them. Uh, the Greeks had an idea called Epicureanism. And Epicureanism essentially says, if it feels good for you, it's right for you. Whatever gives you maximum pleasure is the right thing to do. Well, how do you think that worked out with morals and ethics? Not well at all. Let's move to Rome. Rome, for all of its advances in civilization, did not value human life. When it came for fun, when it came for their entertainment, when it came to their sport, they used the Colosseum. You know what they often did in the Colosseum? You had gladiators that battled one another to the death. You went to watch one man kill another man. Or they would take a prisoner from war, or they would take a slave and set them loose in the Colosseum. Then they would let out a wild animal like a cougar or a lion and watch that animal tear that man to shreds and eat him alive. That was their idea of what was fun. That was what they thought was good, wholesome fun. Are you seeing how morally different the entire world was before Jesus? Maybe a, a good way to understand the morality of the Roman world is simply look at the, uh, the rulers of the Roman world. There's a number you could choose. There's a string of about a dozen that they're either bisexual or homosexual. But we'll just look at Nero for the moment because we've heard of his name before. Nero, though he was married, was known for frequenting brothels under disguise. He was known for taking young men and molesting them, and either killing them when he was done or disfiguring them when he was done. Nero, he decided one day that he was a little bit bored in his marriage, so he wanted a mistress. His wife didn't like that one bit, so she told him that. So he took care of her. He had her killed. That his mother was sort of upset over the fact that he had killed his wife, and he had a mistress. So his mother approached him about that. He took care of that problem too. He had her killed as well. And then he was able to freely marry his mistress. He married his mistress. She conceived his child. And she was, should we say, a little bit hormonal. And he came home late one day from the races. And she was pretty upset with him. So he threw her on the ground and kicked her repeatedly and consistently until... His own child in her womb died as well as she. She died as well. Folks, 
That was life in the ancient world. That was morality in the ancient world. And your eyes are bigger as saucers. I'm looking at you, I can see. But that was considered normal. Then let's get to this. Jesus came into that very cruel and uncivilized world Jesus was born. And Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sin. Then he rose to new life. And anybody who places their faith and trust in him to forgive them of their sins and ask Jesus to be the king of their world, their sins are forgiven by Jesus. But the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes into our life and he changes us. And he makes us into a new person from the inside out, supernaturally. And as people became Christians in Rome, you start to find the culture in Rome changing. Up to 300 AD, it wasn't easy to be a Christian because Christians were persecuted and they were killed. But then when Constantine, who was a Christian emperor, took over in the year 324 AD, things changed. He took over in 324 AD and then in 325 AD, a year later, one of the first things he outlawed was blood sport, the, the, the gladiators because human life was not to be treated that way. Now, in all honesty, gladiatorial combat continued on and off, sort of in an unofficial way, until the year 404 uh, AD, in which case a monk named Almachius put himself into the arena to stop the gladiators from killing each other, because he says, this is not what God would want you to do. It's murder. Remember one of the Ten Commandments? Now, the mob at that point threw rocks at him and eventually stoned him and killed him. But in response to that, gladiatorial combat was stopped once and for all in the Roman Empire, completely. And that just shows you how things were changing when Jesus had taken over. Then in the year 337, crucifixion as a form of death was outlawed in Rome. Now, even though the Romans had perfected crucifixion, making it the most hideous way they conceive of, could conceive of of anyone dying. They ultimately outlawed that point because they said human life, even for the worst of people, should not be treated that way. So you're seeing how Jesus starts to civilize an uncivilized world. I could spend a lot of time on Rome, but I don't have the time to do that this morning. So we're going to move beyond Rome right now, which is civilizing the barbarians. Christianity moved beyond Rome. And by the barbarians, I'm talking about those cultures of the Goths, uh, the Franks, the Saxons that were marauding through Europe that were actually coming down and ultimately attacking Rome. They were uh, vicious and terrible tribes in the sense that whenever they, kill, whenever they attacked, they would kill every man, woman, and child once they took over, and they burned everything to the ground. Yet from Rome, there were Christian missionaries that were sent out to meet them, to be part of their culture, and to share the good news of Jesus with them. And while the Romans couldn't conquer them, I'm going to tell you that Jesus did. Jesus conquered the barbaric cultures of Europe and completely changed their lives. 
great example of that is the Vikings. So here's the Vikings. Oh, wrong Viking, sorry. That Viking, yeah, there you go. The Vikings, um, they were a terrible culture in the sense in the ninth and 10th centuries. They were fierce warriors. They would maraud all of Europe. They would plant their crops in the spring. Then they would go down the coastline, stopping at different places where they would go inland, killing, raping, pillaging, burning, stealing, taking, and then at the end of the summer, they'd work their way back up the coast, back to their homeland, and then they'd harvest their crops. They planted in the spring, and they came home with all kinds of stuff. Their warriors were known as the berserkers, which is where we get the phrase, hey, they are going berserk. That means a Viking warrior who's completely raging and out of control. And the good news is that as the gospel came into the Viking culture. As people heard about Jesus and trusted Jesus, their lives were drastically changed. When you get to the year 1020 AD, King Olav of Norwegian has the first assembly in Norwegian history. And here's what he does, because the gospel has so penetrated the Viking culture. He makes Christianity the law of the land, he outlaws blood sacrifices. He outlaws black magic. He outlaws slavery. He outlaws abortion. He outlaws polygamy. And he outlaws abandoning of children. What changed that culture? Was it powerful Roman warriors? It was Jesus. When the good news of Jesus came into that land, it changed people's hearts. And today, Everyone who's a Norwegian, everyone who's a Swede, everyone who's a Dane, and many British people are descendants of that Viking Gothic culture. And if it were not for the good news of Jesus transforming our ancestors, you and I would most likely still be drinking blood from human skulls like our ancestors once did. That's how the birth of Jesus changes history give you one more example of how Jesus civilizes barbaric culture. Mary of Slesser, Mary Slesser of Calabar. Uh, she lived in 1848 to 1915. She was born in Scotland. You can put her photo up there. Thank you if you have a chance. As a Christian teenager, she decided that God was calling her to be a missionary to Africa. And she went there in 1876. She went to Nigeria. When she was there, uh, she heard about an, a section in Africa called Calabar, where cannibals lived, that even the government soldiers would not go into this area because they were so feared. A very barbaric culture. Some examples of their barbarism. They believed in that culture that twins were the product of demons. So whenever twins were born, they were set out in the forest to be eaten by animals, and the woman who had conceived the twins was also disposed of. They thought they were demonic. They had many of their culture who were slaves. And uh, you know what you do with your slaves in a cannibal culture? You eat them for food. That was normal to them. Mary Slesser, her heart was particularly touched for the plight of the twins. And it so worked out that she was able to get a hold of some of these twins that had been abandoned to be eaten by animals. 
and she took them into her lives and she raised them up. And through those twins, eventually she was able to begin to make contact with this cannibal culture. And very slowly, they were able to build a relationship. And she was able to slowly tell them about Jesus Christ. And one by one, the chiefs of the tribes began giving their lives to Jesus. And that cannibal culture changed. The first thing that changed is they stopped killing and abandoning twins. The next thing that changed is they stopped eating people. It was that verse that says, love your neighbor, don't eat your neighbor, that really got them. But that culture completely changed, not by guns, not by swords, but by the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ when the gospel message goes forth. If Jesus had never been born, barbaric cultures like that, like the Vikings, or like the cannibals in Calabar would never have been civilized because Jesus changes hearts and lives. Let's move to a second example of how Jesus civilizes culture. The birth of Jesus changed the arts. Under the arts, I'd like to begin by looking at cathedrals. After Constantine took over in Rome, around the year 350, A.D., the first cathedrals began to be made. Now, cathedrals are great houses of worship that took many years to build. Let me show you the first one up here. This is one in Armenia that goes all the way back to 350 A.D. And what gets me is, remember, like Derek, they didn't have power tools. They didn't have skid loaders. These things were all done by hand, taking years to do. And it didn't take long for cathedrals to become a far more elaborate than that. Soon they looked like this. Once again, without power tools, built by hand. Cathedrals are some of the most magnificent buildings you can ever see. Huge ceilings, all kinds of detail in them. But why were they built? From people who loved Jesus wanting others to understand the grandeur and greatness of our God to help worship Jesus. If Jesus had never been born, some of the greatest architectural marvels on the planet would have never been built. Let me give you another example. Let's look at painting. We'll start with Michelangelo. We'll put his photo up there. He lived in 1475 through 1519. He was a Christian, and most of the things he painted or sculpted, you notice they come right out of the Bible. Michelangelo's sculpture of David. There's a sculpture of Moses. There's a sculpture of Jesus. His masterpiece, by the way, is in the Sistine Chapel. Go ahead and put that picture up there. He painted the walls of the Sistine Chapel. Realize in that day, most people were illiterate so they couldn't read their Bible. So he painted the stories of their Bible so they could go to church and know their Bible stories. He's an amazing painter. Show that last one. Look at this one, of his painting with Adam and God in creation. All painted by hand. Uh, what strikes me is Michelangelo one of the greatest artists to ever live, all painted this because he was a Christian and he wanted people to know more about Jesus. He wanted people to know more about the Bible. 
Because God had transformed his life and he uses artistic gift to communicate to others about the life-transforming power of God in their life. Take another one, Leonardo da Vinci. He lived from 1452 to 1519, also a Christian, and his love for Jesus inspired most of his artwork as well. You know what his most famous painting is of? It's of the Last Supper. Who's in the center? Jesus. He also has a painting about the wise men visiting Jesus, a painting of Mary and Jesus together, a painting of John the Baptist at the baptism. Do you see how Jesus is the center of the greatest art that has ever been painted? If Jesus had never been born, what would Michelangelo have painted? I don't know. Would he be inspired to paint as well or prolifically as he did? Jesus had never been born. What would Leonardo da Vinci paint? Would he be inspired to paint as well and dramatically as he did? Let's move from art. Let's look at literature. William Shakespeare. He lived in 1564 to 1616. He's known as one of the world's greatest writers. And by the way, he knew his Bible well. Shakespeare is filled with biblical allusions. And you wonder, where did Shakespeare stand in his relationship with Jesus? This is a line from his last will and testament. He writes this, I commend my soul into the hands of God my creator, hoping and assuredly believing through the only merits of Jesus Christ my Savior to be made partaker of life everlasting and my body to the earth whereof it is made. Do you know that Shakespeare was a Christian? Take another uh, great man of literature. You probably may not know his name. Its name is John Bunyan. You wonder, who is Bunyan? What did he write? He wrote a book named Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is the second most published book after the Bible itself. He lived in 1628 to 1688. Pilgrim's Progress is the story of a Christian, a man named Pilgrim, on his travels to what is the celestial city, his heavenly home, and all the different obstacles that he comes across in the way to derail him from his path. It's the story of the Christian life. Second most sold book in history. All because of, all, basically at the germination, all because of Jesus. Let's take somebody that you might know better. Charles Dickens. And he is a very interesting character. Don't you like his beard? He lived in 1812 to 1870, and obviously he wrote The Christmas Carol, or A Christmas Carol, which is the story of the transformation of a guy named Scrooge. Remember all that? In its original writing, Scrooge's transformation is the story of a Christian conversion. It's been dumbed down, remixed in modern society, so we don't have any idea that's what it originally came from. But Charles Dickens was a Christian. His last book he wrote is called The Life of Our Lord, and he wrote it to teach his children about Jesus Christ. So, some of the greatest people of literature have Jesus at the center of their core. Let's take music. Here's a guy for you, Guido of Arezzo. I'll put his photo up there. He lived from 995 to 1050. He is the father of musical annotation. 
Does anybody know how to read music? He's the guy who created written music. And he did it as a monk at his church to try and figure out a way to make some kind of order so you could write down music, so people could learn music, so people could play music and do the same thing twice. And he did it as a Christian trying to figure out how to do music in the church. So if you could read music, thank that guy. He's also the guy who created the parts of soprano, tenor, alto, and you see how Jesus is behind even the creation of music like we know it? Take a, another example. Johann Sebastian Bach. He's considered one of the greatest musicians to ever live. Uh, he created what we know as classical music. He was a Christian. Uh, he was also a, a Lutheran. And there's interesting ways you can see his faith come out in his written music. If you look at some of his original writings, he would put Latin letters uh, on the margins of the page. One that he would often write would be SDG, which is Latin for Solo Deo Gloria. Only God gets the glory. Other times he would write JJ in the margins, which is Latin for Jesu Jubin, which means Jesus, help me. Do you ever have those times where you're working on something at school, you're like, you gotta write JJ in the margins, like Jesus help me, this is really hard? That's what he was writing. He told his students that the only way to be a great composer and a great musician would be to become a Christian. Because all great music is an act of worship to Jesus, he said. Incidentally, he was the first guy to begin playing the keyboard with five fingers, did you know that? Prior to him, everybody played with three. He was the first to play with five. Had Jesus never been born, some of the greatest buildings ever built, like cathedrals, would not be there because they're all part of worshiping him. The greatest painters that ever painted, all about worshiping Jesus. The greatest literary writers were strongly influenced by Jesus. And even music as we know it comes all, grows out of all an act of worship of Jesus. You see how the birth of Jesus has changed everything? Now let's look at one more angle. The birth of Jesus has changed politics. As soon as I say politics, I know what you're thinking. Oh no, Pastor Kurt's talking about politics. Don't you know separation of church and state? Well, let me just pause for a moment. You may be misunderstanding that. Separation of church and state does not mean that our Christian faith should not influence our everyday life. It doesn't mean that we should leave this place and become functional atheists in the world. Separation of church and state means the state has no right to make a state-run church. But our faith should influence all of our life and even our political choices. Now let me show you how Christian faith changes politics. I want to do that by looking at two historical examples. The first one is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was strongly influenced by Jesus and the Bible. Early in his life, he actually was an atheist. But it wasn't he was a pure atheist. 
he ended up around a bunch of skeptic friends who disbelieved the Bible, gave him some books about why you shouldn't believe the Bible. So at first he was on that side of the equation, but he couldn't leave this idea of the scriptures. So he kept reading the Bible, going back and forth, and slowly over time, his thoughts began to change. He started falling more and more in love with Jesus. In one of his, auto, one of his biographies, there's a section that talks about interaction between him and one of his closest friends named Joshua Speed. Joshua comes upon him one night, and it reads this way. As I entered the room, near night, he was sitting near a window, intently reading the Bible. Approaching him, I said, I'm glad to see you are so profitably engaged. Yes, said he, I am profitably engaged. Well, said I, if you have recovered from your skepticism, I'm sorry to say that I have not. Looking me earnestly in the face and placing his hand upon my shoulder, he said, you are wrong, Speed. Take all of this book upon reason that you can and the balance on faith and you will live and die a happier and better man. If you read uh, some of Lincoln's speeches, especially his second inaugural address, you'll find it is just filled with biblical references and, and, and biblical allusions. And then you find that he, as he gets older, starts to enact more and more laws in the country that are in line with biblical values because his faith is coming out in his political life. Here's one example. It's the order for Sabbath observance given November 15th, 1862. The president, commander-in-chief of the army and navy, desires and enjoins the orderly observance of the Sabbath by the officers and men in the military and naval service. The importance for man and beast of the prescribed weekly rest, the sacred rights of Christian soldiers and sailors, a becoming deference to the best sentiments of a Christian people, and a due regard for the divine will demand that Sunday labor in the army and navy be reduced to the measure of strict necessity. The first general order issued by the father of this country, that is Washington, after the Declaration of Independence, indicates the spirit in which our institutions were founded and should ever be defended. The general hopes and trust that every officer and man will endeavor to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier defending the dearest rights and liberties of this country. You see his faith coming out in his politics and his life? Eventually, Abraham Lincoln gave his heart unreservedly to Jesus Christ. But he only lived a year and a half after that. One of the last laws he put into writing was the law that declared the phrase, in God we trust, should be put on our money. In his last cabinet meeting, he told his cabinet that now that the war with the South would have ended, there would be no recriminations, there would be no punishment on the South whatsoever, but we would forgive them and move on. He told them in his final speech that he had passed a bill to Congress that would establish a national day of thanksgiving in our land that would soon be established. You know what that one's about, don't you? Thanksgiving, a national day of Thanksgiving. The Civil War had ended. 
It was that day when it ended, and he told his cabinet on that day that now the Civil War was done, he was going to focus on the plague of alcoholism, which he felt had overtaken the land. That night, he went to the Ford Theater with his wife, Mary. He wasn't really much interested in the, the play. He was so excited that the, the Civil War was over. And he leaned over to his wife and he told her, he said, you know when this is all over, you know what we'd like to do? Let's travel to the Near East. At the same time, a man named John Wilkes Booth left a bar very drunk and began to head on his way to the Ford Theater where Lincoln was located. Lincoln's guard, he left his post to go across the street to a tavern to get a drink. John Wilkes Booth made his way into the theater and opened the door in the back. Lincoln was still talking to his wife. He says, we can go to, to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Booth took a step closer. He said, we can go to Bethany, where Jesus walked. And John Wilkes Booth raised the gun and pointed at Lincoln's head. He said, we can go to Jer And he pulled the trigger and took his life. What many people don't know is that a few weeks prior to that, Abraham Lincoln had written a letter to 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church asking if on Easter Sunday morning he could speak to the people who were there to tell them that he had given his heart and life unreservedly to Jesus. He died on Good Friday, two days before. Lincoln let his faith influence his politics. And when you see how slavery and the ending of slavery in our country, you know as many Christians who were behind all that, trying to end slavery, and Lincoln played a big role in that too. Let me give you one example, one more example. The man's name is William Wilberforce. And I give you this example because it deals with slavery, but I would say that Wilberforce probably was, without doubt, the greatest Christian politician to ever live. He lived from 15, or 1759 to 1833. He inherited vast wealth from his uncle and from his grandfather. He grew up in the Church of England. His parents were nominal Christians. In fact, his mother intentionally kept him away from anyone who might take his faith too seriously. Went away to Cambridge, graduated from Cambridge, ran for English Parliament at the age of 21, and actually won that seat. They represented the largest county of Yorkshire, and he would serve in that parliament for the next 45 years. When he was 25 years old, his mother was going to go on a summer vacation to Italy and Switzerland and asked him to come along. And like a good 25-year-old son, he agreed to. But he wanted to bring a friend with him. And so he brought a friend from Cambridge. The man's name was Isaac Milner. Isaac was a Christian. He said to William Wilberforce, can we bring books? Let's read a book together. And he proposed they read a book called The Rise and Progress of Religion. It was a book on the cross and Jesus and what Jesus' death had done for us. They read that together and Wilberforce, 
his soul was deeply unsettled, but he did not give his life to Jesus. He returned home, and a year later, guess what? Mom wants to go on another vacation to Europe. He wants her son to go with her. And so William Wilberforce calls his friend and says, hey, you want to go on vacation with us again? He says, sure, let's read a book again. This book is called The Greek New Testament. And during that trip, he read the book and gave his heart and soul to Jesus Christ. He returned to England a very changed man. The first thing he wanted to do was get out of politics, because, you know, politics is dirty, politics is corrupt, politics evolves. A lot of times you don't tell the truth. He didn't want anything to do with it. But he met with a man named Isaac Newton, who was a former slave trader who had become a pastor, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace that we all know. And Isaac Newton encouraged him to stay in politics and maybe to take on something that was just difficult, difficult, too big for any one man, slave trade in the English empire. Maybe he could help bring that to an end. And that's what William Wilberforce gave his life to. He studied that. He prepared for that. He wrote about that. Finally, he got up in front of Parliament. He spoke for four and a half hours about the evils of slave trade, took a vote, and it failed miserably. So the next year, he continued to work on this, write about it, and lobby about it, took a vote, it failed miserably. Took a year off, went back, and did it all over again. In fact, that continued for 20 years. Finally, at the end of 20 years, what he had noticed had been happening is the difference in the vote had been changing. More and more people were voting against slavery. At the end of 20 years, the vote was taken and it passed, and slave trade was abolished in the English Empire. It says that Wilberforce just put his head on the table in front of him and sobbed uncontrollably. And he was given the longest standing ovation that has ever happened in the English Parliament. But that's not the end of the story. While slave trade was over, slaves were still in England, many of them. That became his next goal, to free the slaves in England. He wrote about that. He talked about that. And people were highly opposed to him. He had many threats in his life, a couple attempted murders against him. He had to hire bodyguards. His own family was often attacked. But 25 years later, as he was on his deathbed, there was a vote taken once again, like every year in the English Parliament, and the vote passed to set the slaves free. That day, 700,000 slaves in England were emancipated. Just a few days later, William Wilberforce closed his eyes and died. The end of slavery in England had one man whose life was changed by Jesus. Slavery and the end of it in our country often has to do with a bunch of Christians whose lives were changed by Jesus, Abraham Lincoln being one of them. Folks, Jesus changes hearts and changes lives. This is why I wrote this in, the, in your outline. 
all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. Jesus changed history. He changed it for the better. The birth of Jesus civilized nations where the gospel wherever the gospel message went. If it were not for the birth of Jesus, we might still be drinking out of human skulls like our ancestors did. Jesus was the driving force behind the greatest art, the greatest literature, and the greatest music the world has ever seen. Jesus was behind some of the greatest political work in history, such as the ending of slavery. And if Jesus changed history, he can change your story. He came to do a far greater work than improving society. He came to forgive our sins and to restore our relationship with God. So if you're amazed with what Jesus did in history, you'll be even more amazed what happens when you give your heart and life to him because he will dramatically change and redeem you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus was born. We so often forget that if Jesus, you have not come into this world, and if the gospel message had not gone forth changing hearts and changing lives, the world that we live in would be a very different place, a far more barbaric and uncivilized place, that we would be just like ancient Canaanites or ancient Phoenicians, who would be like the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks, barbaric, with no value of human life itself. We thank you that it was because of the gospel that changed lives, that things like slavery in America and in England were ultimately brought to an end. And if you can change world history, thank you, Jesus, that we know for sure that you can change our history. If you're here this morning and you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, I beg you, I implore you, Ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior today and ask him to change you. And I guarantee you he will. We ask this all in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.